Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and I'm joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Obamacare's death spiral. So, Richard, we talked about Obamacare the last time we were together. Plenty of new material to discuss since then. Let's start with President Obama's claim that while there may be some problems, Obamacare is still at some fundamental level strong or at least necessary. The president claims that despite these paltry enrollment numbers they've seen in the program, you did have in the first month almost a million people complete an application, even if they haven't signed up for it just yet. So there's a pent-up demand according to the president. The fact that there's a place for it to go, that's a good thing, right? Well, um, it's actually not so good. It's a very complicated thing. Let me see if I can explain why. First of all, let me explain the source of the title. The death spiral language is, in fact, taken from insurance law, where the operative term is the adverse selection death spiral. And what adverse selection means in a standard insurance policy context is as follows. Assume that you have a wide range of people, who, some of whom have very likely to claim coverage and some of whom are not so. And what you do is you offer the coverage at a fixed price and you're not allowed to do any underwriting. What will happen is those people who know their own personal conditions will say, I'm not likely to call upon this coverage. I will not pay $1,000 in premiums when my expected return is $400. Then on the other hand, you look at people at the other side of the cycle and they say, you know, $100 premium, $1,000 premium, I'm going to be twice that. I'm going to buy. At that particular point, you're not selling insurance. You're selling subsidized health care. What happens, though, is the plan is that you will always get the people who are paying more than they take out of it to subsidize those who don't. The mandate was designed to prevent this from happening, whereby the adverse selection will take place, but it was watered down. So what you're going to see is a million people trying to get on the policies, all of whom are going to pay premiums less than the amount that they're going to get out of it. And now you have to use all sorts of other techniques to get the rest of the people to come back in. And I don't think that you will be able to do that. So the short-term spiral effect comes from the fact that you will sign up 1 million, 2 million people and all the companies who take these people are required to take them without changing rates. They can't select the people whom they want. So they're all going to end up losing money, which means that they're all going to pack their bags and go home. And that risk is something which they've never prepared to negotiate. So that's the first problem. The second problem has to do with the question of even if they get the coverage and if the other people come in, the subsidy from other individuals, the cross-subsidy is not sufficient to cover the losses. So you have to have general tax revenues kicked in. And there's no budget for that, no limit on the amount that's going up. So between the direct subsidies and the cost subsidies, uh, the amount that this thing is going to cost to the society at large is very large. This is going to have impact on consumer demand in other areas. Walmart already says we expect to see fewer people in our stores because of the healthcare stuff. Um, it's going to knock that down. It's going to wreck the employment markets in many ways. It's going to increase the cost of product prices everywhere else. So this will have ripple effects throughout the economy. This is a very dangerous situation we face. How about the president's apology, Richard? He's been getting a lot of heat for this repeated assertion that people who like their plans could keep them. As we're seeing, that's not true. He's saying, well, it's it's mostly true. The only real exception is these plans that were purchased on the individual market. It's a very small percentage of Americans. And then the protections to grandfather in the existing plans perhaps weren't 
quite strong enough. In other words, he's saying we didn't realize we had this problem, and it's not quite as big of a deal as everyone's making it out to be. So how do you react to that? Well, I think to some extent he's just flat wrong. Um, if you go back and you read these earlier speeches before the AMA and so forth, these were not cautious, measured judgment of a man who understood that there was a little bit of playing around the edge. They were absolutely categorical inducements, no qualifications whatsoever, because what he wanted to do politically was the right thing for him to do politically, which is to make sure that the vast bulk of Americans who were satisfied with their health care plan did not feel as though they were threatened. If he had gone forward and announced, you know, if you like your health care plan, 90% of you won't be able to keep it, this thing would have been dead on arrival, and he knew it. And he deliberately overstated it. You go back and you look at the original versions of the program, it was quite clear that the definition of your health care plan in the statute is very different from your health plan when you're going on the husting. And in particular, virtually any one of a large number of material changes in the way in which a plan is internally constituted, any major amendment means it's not the same plan anymore. So the ordinary person says, you know, I had my Blue Cross plan number 4678 uh, for the last 22 years, and what the Obamacare statute said is you have not had that plan for 22 years. You have 27 different plans, each of which has lasted several months. And that's not the way in which people think about it. And so it was a conscious effort to basically mislead people. And the second point, when it came to figuring out how broad the grandfathering would be within the scope of the regulations, they didn't go soft on this. They went tough on this. Their attitude was quietly that all these plans are quote-unquote substandards. Uh, the president never went forward and said, if you like your substandard health care plan, you can keep it. He never said that. And so what they did is they really wanted to become less accommodating and more paternalist. And we knew from the history that this would never work. Remember, there was something known as the mini-med plans. Companies like McDonald's have large numbers of employees who are sort of minimum wage workers. This is very inferior coverage, but it's there. And it turns out it could not survive all of the dictates that went into effect in October of 2010. And so you had hundreds of plans covering millions of people seeking waivers. Well, what does it tell you? It tells you that the thing can't work unless you give the waiver to it. And how could somebody come forward after giving all these waivers and announce that this current thing is likely to be viable? It is simply not credible. No. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so we've, we've got these problems, which is why you had the president announce last week that he's going to delay for a year the implementation of the policies that are causing people to lose their coverage. There's a similar movement in Congress, but it would go further than the president's. It would not only let people keep that coverage that doesn't meet Obamacare standards, it would actually let new customers buy into those plans. The president has said he'll veto that. So there's two big questions that arise from that. We can take them in turn. The first being, is it even logistically plausible to double back at this point and say, just kidding, you've got another year to do this. Second, is the president within his constitutional authority to make that kind of change unilaterally? Well, I mean, I'm going to take the first of the questions, which is, you know, can you reverse field even for people who are currently coveraged? And the answer from the insurance community is it's infernally difficult for us to do so. We, when we change policies, we have to make huge changes in our computers, our infrastructure, agent education. This is a whole business. And now, in effect, we've been planning on this thing for close to a year. We've had all sorts of confusions because of inconsistent signals from the government. For you to turn around and say, go back to the old plan, 
Well, those plans are gone. And in addition, nobody would ever go back to the old plan if you were running a business. There are constant modifications of these plans. And if the president thinks that these companies are going to offer the plans that they had done six months and nine months ago, given the radical change in market conditions, and that they'll be able to make a profit, that turns out, I think, to be largely naive. And so several of the companies have already said that they can't possibly hope to do this. They're going to have to plunge forward. My view is they will fail whether they go forward or whether they go backward, which is why this thing is such a disaster. On the constitutional stuff, I actually disagree with many of the conservatives. Mike McConnell wrote, I think, the most influential article on this. And it is clearly correct to start as your major premise uh, that the president should not be allowed on a gross overall basis to suspend the operation of a law that he does not like, like some of the requirements under the immigration statutes having to do with um, underage children becoming citizens after long residence and so forth. I think he's completely correct about this. But this is not a president who suspended the operation of the law because he didn't like it. This is a president who suspended the operation of the law because he knew it would be catastrophic if he tried to implement it on time. And Shao has to at least have enough wiggle room so as to allow for people to postpone enforcement to something which is incoherent. Now, in this particular case, he's not just trying to postpone the law. He's going beyond that. He has got this bright idea that he's going to require all of the companies to announce to all of their customers why it is that the defunct program under Obamacare is superior to the thing that they have done. Uh, a disclosure program like that is of immense complexity. It requires huge dollars to implement. There are normally going to be fines associated with noncompliance and misrepresentation under these things. And if he really thinks that companies are going to try to put back the old plan when they have to bear these additional burdens, it is simply a pipe dream. As a constitutional matter, it's also no longer just a delay. Now, in effect, it is, it is more than a delay. It's a delay subject to various kinds of conditions, and I do think that that is unconstitutional. Uh, the other part about it is he's not willing to allow people who don't have coverage to buy coverage in the voluntary market. And I think that for a man who's come forward and said that, you know, to be without health care is to be vulnerable in the worst possible way, then to take a group of people, to prevent them from buying policies from somebody who's willing to sell it to them, and insisting that they buy the policies from his particular outlet, the government monopoly, when he can't even supply them, is a kind of a form of real cruelty. And, you know, I wrote in my little Hoover column that I thought somebody actually ought to bring suit, saying that this is so offensive to this tradition of our people to basically tell people that they have to get care from government which is unwilling to provide it, that this whole thing may turn out, if enacted, to be unconstitutional. But I also think from his point of view, it's just a form of moral blindness. He really believes that he has a superior product. He's said this countless numbers of times. He doesn't understand that a superior product is not one that offers more coverage. It's one that offers more net benefit to consumers relative to the cost. And so what he's doing is he's pushing down this path. And when you look at this thing and then see the list of minimum essential benefits that are required in virtually all of these plans, you're not going to do it. We still have the small group plan, which is also 20 or 25 million people. It's subject to the same mandates. We will have the same kind of difficulties with this when this thing starts to get rolled out. In fact, you could have, by the time the whole market is covered, everybody who's not on Medicare and Medicaid in a position where their policies will be canceled or substantially altered. I mean, this is beginning to look like the catastrophic catastrophic health care plans of 1988, which were repealed in 1989. And I think that the pressures are going to grow. It, it seems almost certain that the quote fix will not come 
uh, by December 1st, at which point everything becomes unglued. So final question, Richard. There's some talk now on the left that one of the reasons this has been such a fiasco, one of the reasons that Obamacare is so flawed is that it was this untenable compromise from the get-go. They should have just gone all the way and erected a single-payer system and you wouldn't be having these problems. So A, I want to get you to respond to that, but B, as this thing goes forward, do you foresee any public appetite for resolving this debacle in that direction? Is that a real well, I mean, People have to have the faith that the guys who are running a web system for some fraction of the population and have bollocksed it can now take over the entire system. Uh, this cannot be done. First of all, there's no way we could ever go to the Canadian system in which the central, province, central government gives a budget allowances to the provinces and then they contract out to private firms to supply the services. Uh, we have an entitlement program which is not based on budget caps and capitation. We have Medicare and Medicaid. So to put this as a single-payer system, you're going to have to either give everybody Medicare, at which point everybody gets subsidized four to one which or three to one, which is not possible, or you're going to have to say it's everybody who's not in Medicare gets this kind of coverage, which means that the transition and the seam problems are crazy. You're going to have to fold Medicaid into this particular program. It's simply too unruly. And I think the level of you know, total contempt for the president and for his programs is such that if he says, you know, you've got to double down on this, not. Now, some people like Alan Blind are writing a very poor column in the Wall Street Journal sort of announces, well, we have to go to Obamacare because the only alternative is the status quo. But that's not right. I mean, you think of what the healthcare system looked like in 1980 when many more people were covered by it. And there were fewer mandates. The president voted for every mandate that was proposed when he sat in the Illinois state legislature. He wants more mandates now. What mandates do is they kill coverage. Uh, you make it too unaffordable so that people drop it. Uh, the people who dropped um, employer health care benefits over the last 33 or so years is basically 15 million people, which is the size of the individual market. If you had not forced those mandates, people would have had coverage that was affordable, but would not have given you all the exotic. But the president seems to think you could have thick coverage and extensive coverage, that is, move on both margins. And if you increase the number of people and increase the benefits for each particular person, it's just a recipe for bankruptcy. So I do not, I think that his, his, his credibility is completely shot, that that's not likely. I think most people would like to have bed rest, that is a repeal of this, but the tragedy is there's no going back. Um, even if we do the best possible thing now, which we can't do so long as he's president, because he will block anything that's intelligent, we are still far worse off than if we had never tried this experiment to begin with. This is going to make the Edsel look like a great, great performance. <laughs> All right. Uh, my thanks as always to Richard Epstein and to you, our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow Richard on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening. Thank you.